a very serious situation is rapidly developing, which bodes no good for the world. That's U.S. Secretary of State George C. Marshall in June 1947. He's describing what will eventually become the European Recovery Program, which most of us know as the Marshall Plan. It took place after World War II when the United States pumped billions of dollars into Europe's post-war recovery efforts. The Marshall Plan didn't just share money with Europe. It also shared expertise and research from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which had reams and reams of analysis on worker productivity in the United States. Under the Marshall Plan, thousands of European workers, managers, and business owners came to the United States to see what worked there and what didn't, so they could emulate the good stuff at home and avoid the mistakes. What drove this magnanimous effort on the part of the United States? Let's listen in to find out. Aside from the demoralizing effect on the world at large, and the possibilities of disturbances arising as a result of the desperation of the people concerned, the consequences to the economy of the United States should be apparent to all. It is logical that the United States should do whatever it is able to do to assist in the return of normal economic health in the world without which there can be no political stability and no assured peace. Our policy is directed not against... Hear what he said there? He basically argues that we're all interconnected and we all have an interest in promoting a stable world. I'll repeat the last sentence verbatim. It is logical, he said, that the United States should do whatever it is able to do to assist in the return of normal economic health in the world without which there can be no political stability and no assured peace. That was 72 years ago. And yeah, I know some people argue that the Marshall Plan gets too much credit for the post-war recovery. After all, it's the people of Europe who ultimately made it work. But the Marshall Plan was a key part of that recovery, which was a joint effort that succeeded because of cooperation— not just among countries, but between governments and the private sector within those countries. And here we are now, 72 years later, facing an even greater challenge as the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere spirals up to a level we haven't seen in 5 million years. As global climate talks begin here in Madrid, the UN's emissions gap report is showing that we humans pumped the equivalent of 55 gigatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere last year. That's 55 billion metric tons of heat-trapping gases. Gases! They're lighter than air, and we pumped 55 billion metric tons of them into the atmosphere last year. I'll be producing an explainer on the Emissions Gap Report tomorrow. But for now, all you need to know is this. If you take all of our current pledges to fix the climate mess, all the plans and the progress to date, we're still about 60% short of where we need to be to prevent the planet from warming to more than 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. That means we have to both slash industrial emissions and increase removals. And we have to do it fast. On the removals front, 
Planting trees is great, but it will take decades for all those new trees that everyone's planting to absorb the carbon dioxide that's being released right now as the Amazon and Congo forests burn. We absolutely have to end deforestation if we're to meet the climate challenge, and that means overhauling our entire agricultural economy. There's a lot of money sloshing around forests, and most of it goes into agricultural subsidies and investments that destroy forests, while only a trickle goes into programs that save them. That's why today's guest, Charlotte Streck, wants to implement a Marshall Plan for forests. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine that question by taking a step up out of the weeds for a moment and looking at the bigger picture. How do all of the disparate issues that we cover regularly on Bionic Planet fit together? The answer, in a Marshall Plan for Forests. Five years ago, companies, countries, and indigenous organizations endorsed the New York Declaration on Forests, or NYDF, which is a set of 10 goals that were supposed to cut deforestation in half by 2020, or just one month from now, and end it completely by 2030. In those five years, companies have completely restructured their global supply chains. Benign companies have become very good. Sloppy companies have become horrible. Despite the improved transparency, however, deforestation rates have gone up, not down. Today's guest, Charlotte Streck, is one of the very first people I met when I started covering this stuff back in 2006. She runs an environmental consultancy and think tank called Climate Focus, which not only researches deforestation and its drivers, but helps governments, companies, and UN agencies understand how to address it. Climate Focus also oversees the program that evaluates the New York Declaration on Forests. I caught up to her by Skype a little over a month ago to find out about the Marshall Plan for Forests, but it also hit me that although I've interviewed her about a million times in the last 15 years, I had no idea how she got into this whole thing. So I started out by asking her. So there is there are things about me that you do not seem to know that go further back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so by my first my first career, I'm an um, I have a master in biological science. So I come from I actually come from the forest. My master thesis was in, on invasive species in the black forest in Germany. So I'm coming from a concern about forest, and then it is it became clear. So I'm not I'm not in my 
bones of really good natural scientists. I'm, I'm probably a better lawyer, a better advocate here. Uh, but so I went on to go to law school, but always with a view on, on defending ecosystems and forests. So that was definitely the primary motivation. Ah, yeah, and, and here we are now. <laughs> well, and one of the things that you've been doing is tracking progress towards all of these international commitments, not just the Paris Agreement, but the New York Declaration on Forests. And, and right now you're giving us an F. I mean, we're failing, right? Correct. Um, we collectively, and including all the endorsers of the New York Declaration on Forests, have failed. Uh, we will not achieve the goals, not the 2020 goals. There is a second goal, um, which says the endorsers of the New York Declaration on Forests will do whatever they can to hold deforestation completely by 2030. And I still hope that we will achieve this. However, um, in the last five years, we have lost uh, tree cover of the size of the United Kingdom every year. So this is a lot of deforestation. And most of it is primary tropical forest, which is particularly important for ecosystem services for the climate regulation that it does in, in the regions where, where it can be found, but also because it is the greatest carbon reservoir that we have outside of the oceans. So this is of particular concern that all this deforestation is in tropical countries. And of course, the New York Declaration tries to address this problem by bringing together the efforts of private sector, governments, and NGOs and indigenous people groups, which are all endorsers of the New York Declaration, altogether more than 200 entities. But if we look at, in, at the Paris Climate Agreement, this is, uh, while it is narrower in terms of sectoral coverage, because it is only looking at governments, speaking to governments, but it includes, of course, all governments. So we, we can also hope that not only that these different endorsers and groups and governments live up to what they have said in the New York Declaration, but also under the Paris Agreement, where we will see in 2020 an updating of the country pledges with respect to climate change mitigation. So we have these two processes and others in parallel. And I guess what it all comes down to is is money. Uh, I mean, it's it's flowing into activities that destroy forests, and and you've been saying that since I since I've known you. Um, and just this week, the Food and Land Use Coalition came out with a, a new report. One of the things that they said was that only about one percent of the seven hundred billion dollars or so that we spend on food goes into activities that support the environment. And that I guess it's it's this kind of stuff that got, that that made you put out this call for a Marshall Plan for Forests, you know, trying to bring resources to bear on combating deforestation. But I guess a question I would have on that on the the FOLU report, we've got all these subsidies paying people to do the wrong thing, and then you've got Red Plus paying to do the right thing. Shouldn't we start by ending these destructive subsidies? Wouldn't that wouldn't that do more than putting money into Red Plus? Or is is, is this is this a matter of targeting the money from Red Plus in the right way? Both is important, but if you ask me what is more important is then it is realigning the baseline funding so that what we have currently going out uh, to activities that drive deforestation with forest goals. Because it is it's absolutely correct that, you know, as long as we pay 100 times more 
and, and this is government investors, so it is not only subsidies, it is all baseline investments of, of private sector investors that do support agricultural projects and supply chain activities and the food sector. And most of it, the overwhelming majority is not uh, not only not having any forest goals, so it's not only not forest positive in the sense that it wants to protect the forest, it is also not coming with any safeguards. So it is mm-hmm. blind on blind on the on the forest eye and we need so that it's very urgent that this baseline funding or the grey finance how we call it is shifted and being made climate and forest proof so that it takes into account safeguards and is deployed in a way that at least it is careful with forests. Uh, Having said this, red and forest specific finance is of course important and we also need more of this because we, this is the catalytic finance that needs help governments and private sector to shift the baseline finance into greener purposes. Let me jump in for a second here because I know the sound isn't all that good. And I want to make sure you pick up on that term, catalytic finance. Basically, we have all of this money sloshing around the world. Some of it in agriculture subsidies that are driving deforestation and a little tiny bit of targeted finance for things like Red Plus, which I've covered a lot of these past few months. Red Plus stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation of Forests plus the Enhancement of Carbon Stocks. And it uses carbon finance to jumpstart sustainable agricultural practices. For more on Red Plus, check out episodes 49, 50, and 51. Also, if you like Bionic Planet and want more and better episodes, then you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Bionic Planet is all one word, no dots or dashes. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher, namely access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Now back to Charlotta and the limits of Red Plus. Red cannot, or any kind of additional forest money cannot compensate for things get, that go wrong, but it can be the lever to direct the finance into, into more forest-caring activities. Can you maybe elaborate on, on that a bit? Like, how, how can it be a lever? Of course. So we, we see at the moment, uh, so the biggest driver of deforestation continues to be agriculture, and within agriculture, it is commodity-driven agriculture. So, and there is three or four main, main commodities. So there is uh, soy, it is beef, it is um, palm oil, it is 
timber and pulp and paper. So these are the, what we call the big four. And then you have a second tier of drivers of deforestation around cocoa, coffee, and rubber, and, and sugar, a few, few more. Now, this is happening, and then we have a lot of investment, and governments are using uh, subsidies to support the production and export of these commodities, and many countries depend also on, on those commodities as an important part of their GDP. Now, they need the commodities, they need the income, but we need to make sure, and they, there is a general, many countries also have committed to protect their forest. So what I mean in using red finance as a lever is using red finance to do a subsidy reform, to review subsidies, do the studies that are needed, do the consultations that are needed for this, reframing it, also establishing smart subsidies that go into activities that actively protect a forest, so climate smart agriculture, support of smallholders that cannot finance their transition to a more forest responsible agriculture themselves where support is needed, so that is an important part, but also supporting regulatory measures with law enforcement, so that is supporting the agencies that protect the forest, enable them with technology, with people, with vehicles, whatever is needed to implement these measures as well. So that it is not only a paper promise to change things, but puts in action a set of reforms that then protect the forest. And that, of course, costs something. And this is where red finance can help. So it can be the a small amount of money that maybe goes into a case. I, I know in, in Indonesia with palm oil, that's been a big issue is, is helping these smallholders get up to speed because smallholders are less efficient than the, the larger operations. And some companies are working with smallholders to help them improve their practices. And, and you're saying that Red Plus Finance can also be used to help these kind of practices where, where there's no real money to start it up. You can help these smallholders get up to speed so that they're able to produce in a way that's sustainable and that their sustainability is verified, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then, then it becomes easier for private sector finance to move in and know what to buy. Is that an accurate way of putting it? Or That's right. Uh, the small order example is a very good one. And you have a whole suite of activities that need to be financed in order to link the smallholders to a market and to make sure that there is a certification of products that are deforestation free. Um, the smallholders do not deforest generally because they want to deforest. They do it because they have a lack of opportunity. They have a lack of input, so they mine the soil. Um, they don't have land titles. And for this, they, they go and, and encroach into the forest. So a combination of organizing the smallholders in cooperatives, giving them market access, helping them to get land title to their existing farmland so that it is you know, worth for them to invest in, but then also making available particular credit lines that allow them to, to invest into the uh, transitions that are necessary that can be new uh, plants, it could be labor, it could be whatever is needed. That depends also it's in palm oil a bit different from cocoa and, and other activities, but it is always a number of farm activities that need to happen, and smallholders normally don't have uh, the, the cash reserves or access to credit to do it. So all this, all this needs to happen to make sure that the smallholders then can, on one hand, carve out a good living and improve their, 
their living standards and stop encroaching into the forest. So that is, you know, one of these examples. And for for larger businesses, take for example the soy sector. In soy, we have comparatively few smallholders. If you compare it to palm oil, for example, or, or also to beef, in soy it is often a question of particular safeguards of particular regulations that need to be put in place for the larger farmers not to deforest, and that needs to be backed by enforcement and the agencies that can monitor this. So that's another set of activities, even though the farmers need less direct support than, for example, in palm oil. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in one, one country that has that kind of regulation is, is Brazil, but with uh, Bolsonaro, in office, we're seeing the Amazon being destroyed, at, you know, at ever faster rates to make way for agriculture. How, how can this kind of targeted finance impact a country like that? We have a recalcitrant government that isn't really interested in enforcing the law. Well, unfortunately, we see a number of governments around mm -hmm. the globe which are not uh, stellar examples of climate change or resource uh, protection at the moment. And it is a problem, of course, from the outside. There are limited things the international community can do because at the end it is a political prerogative of a country and, and people in the countries to decide. However, of course, in Brazil and in other countries, where we, we at the moment see rollback on, you know, uh, regulation. We have this, of course, in the U.S. as well and mm -hmm. in other countries. There are many actors in the country that, uh, that, that are unhappy with these developments and they are connected, for example, in civil society. Uh, it's important that different groups support each other, but also with data and information as plays an important role. And least but or not not least what we can do in in countries where a lot of the commodities go so whether it is soy or beef it is a legitimate question on what we can do on the demand side saying that we through our behavior in europe or in north america or in whatever other countries we are are not that we are not contributing to a deforestation in Brazil or Indonesia that can imply that we look for certified product, that we become more conscious consumers. It can imply that we eat less meat, for example, which is one of the main drivers of deforestation. But it also means having a conversation with our government about uh, demand-side measures, for example, requiring that the importers bring proof that this commodity is deforestation-free when it enters in our our countries and markets. And there we have an example in the timber sector in the United States and in Europe. We have regulations that prohibit the import of illegal timber and the importer, the, the, the trader or the processor that imports timber needs to bring proof along the, the chain of custody that there has been no illegal deforestation. And that is a measure, that is a demand-side measure, um, that has proven to be one of the more successful ones in addressing a particular deforestation problem. So while it is a sovereign decision, you know, for countries and their people in a way to decide on their politics, we in other countries 
have, of course, the, the possibility to influence things to the decision what we buy, what we consume, and how we, how we push our governments to take these concerns seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a, an interesting dynamic that relates to this, too. Uh, in Indonesia, as I understand it, the, the larger, a lot of the larger exporters have actually improved their, their production because they're interested in the export market. And a lot of the deforestation is happening in, in smaller companies that are exporting more to China and India. And I guess from what I'm hearing in Brazil, something similar is happening where the larger soy exporters are kind of freaked out about all these fires because they're worried that they're going to lose exports and they're the ones kind of clamping down. So a lot of this stuff seems to be kind of rogue, not even driven by agriculture, but driven by speculators looking to maybe later get into agriculture or to, to, to somehow you know, clear land for later use. Is, this, is there a leverage point in here somewhere that, that we can latch on to with this, with this dynamic where you, you, it seems that some of the larger producers want to do the right thing? Again, not necessarily because they're morally <laughs> superior, but because they have a vested interest in, in making sure that their exports are purchased. And, and in a way that confirms that markets become more sensitive, and in mm-hmm. particular export markets. So, uh, an, an Brazilian soy producer, an Indonesian palm oil producer, an West African cocoa trader that wants to export where a lot is of the commodity is exported has, of course, an interest that it can. Um, enter the big import markets, so the consumer markets, and we see there is discussion, for example, in the European Union about replicating the model of illegal timber also mm. for other commodities, and that is uh, something that these, these companies are sensitive to, and they, in Brazil, there is enough land to, to uh, harvest a lot of soy without ever deforesting right. again, so for, the land is there, and the farmers do do not need to generate a, a forest a deforestation soy, so for them it is much more important to enter the markets. The model of illegal timber that she's alluding to is a 2013 amendment to the EU Forest Law Enforcement Governance and Trade Action Plan. A lot of people call it FLEG T. Uh, for forest law, enforcement, governance, and trade. It essentially bans the import of timber that has been illegally harvested abroad. And it works. Now they're talking about doing something similar for commodities that impact forests. And there's precedent for this too. In 2006, a bunch of U.S. importers implemented a voluntary moratorium on the import of soy from farms in the Amazon region if they had been recently deforested. The soy moratorium worked, at least in the Amazon, but deforestation shifted to the Cejado. You can learn more about this on episode 20 of Bionic Planet. That's called Brazil and Indonesia Connecting the Climate Dots. Also, if you like Bionic Planet and want more and better episodes, then you can help me generate them by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. 
namely access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Now, back to Charlotte Streck. But we see also coming back to Indonesia, Indonesia is a good example of a bit of a success story. So if we go and, you know, about something positive, and we see a, a relatively sharp decline in, in deforestation in Indonesia in the last two or three years. And that is also a good example where we see the coming together of different uh, initiatives and we go back to um, the proposal of a Marshall Plan for Forest because we can see it is not a single action or a single actor that has produced the, this reduction in deforestation. In contrary, it can be attributed to a whole range of different, different activities, which are financed in different ways and through different partners and, and supported. So we have in Indonesia, on one hand, the larger palm oil companies that really move relatively fast to certification. So we see large parts of the palm oil companies becoming cleaner. In particular, we see almost a complete stop of palm oil on peatlands. That is, of course, linked to also the government adopting a moratorium on peatland exploitation. So we have this. Then we have the government funding a number of smaller activities to support small farmers to, uh, to reduce deforestation or reduce the deforestation impact. And the government is also looking at a, at a number of other moratoriums also relating not only to peat but also to timber. Um, one also has to say that in Indonesia we also had wetter, more rain in the last two years than we had in the years before. But nevertheless, it is a whole suite of activities. And the important thing in protecting forests is that we come together as a community and and do what we can from our particular vintage points to contribute to the protection of forests. And that is, on one hand, the consumer measures that I mentioned, but it is also the companies that are working together to clean up their supply chains, and that comes with investment. It is the governments in the countries, in the tropical forest countries, working on governance reform and then improving the policies or adopting policies and legal frameworks. It is the donor governments that support through the red mechanism these activities of governments and make sure that financing is available to pay and reward these efforts. And it is civil society that works on different on-the-ground programs and on transparency, um, partly also supported by philanthropies. And it is private sector investors into conservation projects and red projects. So it is not uh, the either or, it's not the red mechanism with public payments that can save the forest. It is not the supply chain movement and the corporations that can save the forest. It's not a red project 
supported by a particular uh, investor that can save the forest or the NGOs. It is only if it all comes together. And uh, similar to the, the Marshall Plan in in Europe after Second World War, which was a very ambitious collective effort to rebuild Europe, I feel we need a collective ambitious effort to protect the forest where all hands and all purses have a role to play. What should we be looking for to know if these various disparate movements are in fact coming together? You know, what, what should we, you know, what would be some signs that we're actually going in the right direction? So on one hand, next year is critical. It's probably more critical even than this year in terms of the politic process. For the forest, every second is critical. Mm -hmm. But in terms of policy processes, we have a lot of deadlines that are linked to 2020. As you mentioned at the beginning, the New York Declaration on Forests, we will see a new set of pledges under the Paris Agreement. We have um, the corporate commitments under the Consumer Goods Forum that are linked to 2020. And we also have restoration commitments that are linked to 2020. All these commitments need to be revisited. Most of the goals we have not met or the endorsers have not met, the community hasn't met. So, but and there is no way of peddling back. This is not acceptable. But we know a lot more. So we have understood, I think compared to five years ago, we have understood the, the ecosystem of different players and the roles that they have to assume we understand it better. So these, uh, the new goals need to be refreshed. They need to be more ambitious, ambitious, but also they need to back by a real understanding on how implementation works and what needs to be done. And that's then also where finance and you know my 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 nice Marshall Plan comes into play when we move to implementation, because one of the frustrating things is also for those that follow the international scene. There is absolutely no shortage of commitments pledges or announcements they also normally come with some light, some you know spotlight with some attention with some media and then you know everybody is happy and then everybody goes home maybe there is a newspaper article or two but then more often than not very little happens and very little you know or not enough happens or let's say not everybody takes that so seriously what is there announced and what this is this frustration with this situation has led to the to this um, annual New York Declaration Progress Assessment Assessment Report that we publish with a group, a large group of civil society organizations and think tanks. But we also feel that there need to be more scrutiny from the public and the press to really make sure that everybody, that these companies and the governments follow up on their commitments because we cannot grant them the, the, the audience and the spotlight and then not hold them accountable. Yeah, that's, I mean, we're, as you know, our supply chain initiative is one of the groups that contributes to that. And I talked to those guys, and one of the things that they find frustrating is companies, it seems that companies will make these commitments. Some of them, like Unilever, are serious, and you can tell they're serious because they're, you know, they, they, they bring in auditors and they publicize the results. And others, it's almost like they look around and they say, hmm, no one's paying attention, and the commitments disappear. You know, like a company will make a commitment one year, and it's in their annual report, it's on the front page, and then three years later, there's no mention of it. No, no, you know, <laughs> no progress, nothing. So, and it's uh, it's up to us in the media 
to shine a light on that and to say, hey, look, these guys are not keeping their word. And and at the same token, by the same token, I think point out the companies that are doing the right thing. You know, the Unilevers, the Marks right. Spencers. That's right. I think that that is a collective responsibility between the media, research, and civil society. Uh, and particular, so in, in often in, in government, in government, so in our national governments, there are institutionalized accountability mechanisms that we can, you know, that are there. There are institutions that check and publish data and make sure that the government is held accountable. There are also court systems that do this. In in the international sphere, generally. Uh, particular where we are in all this area of soft law, so where we are in the area of pledges and announcements, there's often no accountability whatsoever in, embedded into the original document. So this mm-hmm. is where there is a there is a role for for this combination of media research and think tanks to shed light on what's going on and also to follow it over time. So this is something which is a long-term project for all of us in the sense that we need to keep all these this corporations, the governments and, and entities that make these pledges honest to what they, what, what they have told us and what they have agreed to do. Charlotte Streck of Climate Focus wrapping up this edition of Bionic Planet. I apologize for the sound quality there. We were doing that on Skype, but I'm doing interviews all this week and next in person here at the Climate Talks in Madrid, Spain. I think you'll find the quality of the sound is a little bit better, uh, although it's hard to get better quality analysis than what Charlotte provides. Anyway, until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Madrid. Thanks for listening. <laughs>